verses 19 through 31. First, please join me in a prayer for illumination. Dear Lord God, thank you for your word and our freedom to, to hear and read it. Please send your spirit now that we may listen and hear your love and will for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke 16. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and in Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The word of the Lord. In this season of Lent, we've been investigating Jesus and his teaching through different topics in the Gospels. And today we come to the topic of justice. And to help us think about it, we're looking at this strange and often misunderstood parable, usually called the, the rich man and Lazarus. In this parable, Jesus is teaching much more uh, than about life after death. He takes up one of the greatest inequalities of his day and, and our own, the massive wealth disparity between the rich and the poor, in order to teach us something not just about the future, but about the present. Let me explain. There are three things that we need to see here today in order to understand the, the point of this parable. First, we need to see the problem that Jesus identifies. Second, the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. And third, the solution that he offers. The problem, the audience, and the solution. Let's look at each one of these. First, the problem that Jesus identifies is obvious. The rich man is inside the gate in his home. Lazarus is outside the gate 
in the street. The rich man wears the finest clothing. Lazarus is covered with sores. The rich man feasts in luxury every day. Lazarus just wants to eat whatever he can get. The rich man dies and is buried. Lazarus dies, and and nothing is said about a burial, so likely he's carried off by strangers, thrown into a pauper's grave. In the afterlife, their positions are reversed. Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side, while the rich man, Jesus says, is in torment, in Hades, in hell. Their conditions have changed, but surprisingly, some things have not changed at all, especially the rich man's attitude. Ironically, he continues to treat Lazarus like a servant, like his own servant. I think you're supposed to find this somewhat humorous. Here is Lazarus at Abraham's side, and the rich man in Hades And he calls out to Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He still has such a a strong sense of his status and a desire for his own comfort. The rich man wants Lazarus to do for him what he never could be bothered to do for Lazarus when he lay outside the gate. And later, he asked for Lazarus to be sent as a messenger to his brothers, again treating him as a a lowly servant to do his will. This uh, wealthy man's attitude teaches us something important about how Jesus defined injustice and sin. What is it that the the rich man has done wrong to bring him under God's judgment? He enjoyed his life. You know, he liked good clothes. He liked to eat. Nothing wrong necessarily with those things. So why is he condemned? Well, it doesn't have to do with what he did, but with what he did not do. While he ate and drank every day, he overlooked the poor man lying outside his home. He was blind to this man whom he saw every day, and did nothing to help him. Jesus sets a a standard of injustice here that is incredibly high. Injustice is not just about actively doing wrong to others. It also results from our failure to act, our ignorance, and even our apathy. The Japanese author Shusaku Endo gets at this uh, really pointedly in his novel, Silence, where he writes, Sin is not what it is usually thought to be. It is not to steal and tell lies. Sin is for one man to walk brutally over the life of another and to be quite oblivious of the wound. And and telling lies aren't, aren't good. The point is, what is sin really? Is it just the overt acts of wrong? Do we need forgiveness only for what we have done or also for what we have left undone? Yes, also for what we have left undone, Jesus is saying. 
the obliviousness of the rich man reminds me of a scene from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, in the final book, The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis describes a group of dwarves who have passed into the restored and healed Narnia, where everything is good, but the dwarves refuse to see it. They're sitting in a beautiful pasture, but they would rather believe that they are inside a dark and, and smelly stable. No matter what anyone does for them, they refuse to accept that they are surrounded by sunlight and grass and flowers. And then the great lion Aslan shows up, and Lucy asks him to do something for these dwarves. Aslan says that he will show them what he can and cannot do. First, he makes all these delicacies appear before the dwarves, pies and meats and desserts and wine, and they begin gobbling it down, but it quickly becomes clear that they can't taste the food properly. They think they are eating and drinking the sorts of things that you find in a stable. They drink the wine and they say, ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. And then they start fighting because everyone thinks another dwarf has something better. And the scene ends like this. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, and yet they are in that prison, and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. This is very similar to this rich man in Hades. Notice that he never asked to be let out of hell. He only wants to bring Lazarus down to where he is, to serve him. He wants to be comfortable, but he has no desire to change. The problem that Jesus identifies is, is twofold. On the one hand, he offers a standard of injustice that is so deeply challenging if we're responsible not just for what we do, but for what we do not do. And on the other hand, Jesus shows just how blind and self-centered human beings can be. The rich man would never get down in the street with Lazarus, and in the afterlife, he remains proud and selfish. Even his request to send Lazarus to warn his brothers is a kind of blame-shifting of, of responsibility. He's suggesting that he really wasn't given enough information to avoid his fate. If God had warned him sufficiently, then he wouldn't be in the place of torment. So that's the problem. But if we're going to understand the aim of this story, we need to see the audience that Jesus has in view. In the context of this chapter in Luke, Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees. If you go back to verse 14, which we didn't print in the bulletin, uh, it says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus was teaching 
and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Jesus says that they were justifying themselves. To justify yourself means to to prove yourself, to prove to others that you really are righteous. The Pharisees justified themselves on the basis of their religious performance and their reputation in the community. They, They loved the success and the status and the financial reward that this brought them. But God knew their hearts, Jesus says. What they did on the outside didn't match who they were on the inside. They loved what they could get from appearing close to God, but they didn't love God for himself. Their identity was based not on God's grace, but on their performance. When we base our identity on something created rather than our creator, it becomes ultimate in our lives. Another word for that is worship. When you worship something that is not meant to be worshipped, when you take something good and you make it ultimate, uh, this distorts and corrupts all your other relationships. In his book, Surprised by Hope, uh, N.T. Wright describes how this happens. He says, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. We find something very similar to this idea in the parable. Have you noticed there are two main characters in this parable and only one of them is given a name? There's Lazarus, And there is just the rich man. The difference here is significant. In fact, this is the only parable of Jesus where a character has a name. And the one who is given a name is not the socially mobile, wealthy, well-dressed one. It's the pitiful poor man who gets a name. The name Lazarus, which means God helps. What do we make of this difference? Well, to have a name is really important. To have a name means that you have an identity, a stable identity. You know who you are. Despite all his suffering, Lazarus is not defined by his suffering. He's not defined by his poverty. He's not defined by his circumstances. He has a name and an identity that continues even after his death. But the rich man is just a rich man. 
He's defined by his possessions. Abraham says to him, child, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. He made his wealth the center of his life. He worshipped it. And he really doesn't have an identity beyond those things. Jesus is showing us how when you build your, your, your identity on something unstable and temporary, on something created rather than your creator, then when you lose that thing, you also lose yourself. The Pharisees ridiculed Jesus for his teaching that in God's kingdom, the poor are blessed, not because they are poor, but because they have an identity and a value that is not based on their material condition. This is why I think Jesus told the Pharisees such a, a he wanted to frighten them, but he wanted to warn them that if they sought to justify themselves rather than be justified by grace, that their self-centeredness and their greed would ultimately destroy them. There would be nothing left. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just a grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell, unless it is nipped in the bud. There's a different dynamic at work, however, if you've been humbled by the teaching of Jesus. When you're able to admit what is really in your heart and the judgment that it deserves, you begin to realize the radical nature of God's grace. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The goal of Jesus is not to make us wallow in our sin. It's to transform us into the kind of people who have the humility and the character to use what we've been given to serve others. In the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, uh, he writes the church to encourage them to give for a collection that he was making uh, for the poorest of the poor in Jerusalem. And in chapter 8, he encourages them to give generously to this collection. But how he does this is really important. He doesn't command them to do it on the basis of his, of his apostolic authority, which he could have done. Instead, he motivates them with the gospel. He says in chapter 8, verse 9, he says, you should give because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. What's he saying? 
He's saying if you, if you believe that Jesus gave up all the riches of heaven in order to become poor for your sake, then you have a motivation for pursuing justice, for serving the poor, that can sustain you even in the face of the most stubborn and, and difficult problems. If you know that in Christ you are given a name and an identity that cannot be shaken because it's not based on your performance, but on his love, then you will be freed from self-centeredness and greed, so you will want to seek justice. At the same time, your pursuit of justice won't lead you to despise those who do not share your convictions or your priorities. Justice without grace can easily become just another form of self-righteousness, but grace without justice is superficial. But when you have a community of people who treat each other with grace and have a heart for doing what is right, not just for themselves, but for others, then something powerful can happen. It shows that there's a power at work in our midst that comes from beyond ourselves. The missionary theologian Leslie Newbegin, whom I often quote, uh, paints a picture of this, and I, I put a quote in the, on the reflections page of the bulletin uh, where he says this, if the gospel is to challenge the public life of our society, it will not be by forming a Christian political party or by aggressive propaganda campaigns. It will only be by movements that begin with the local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present, known, and experienced, and from which men and women will go into every sector of public life to claim it for Christ, to unmask the illusions which have remained hidden, and to expose all areas of public life to the illumination of the gospel. But that will only happen as and when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. Do you hear what he's saying? He's, he's talking about a church that has been broken, in, broken open by grace so that people so appreciate the gift of the gospel that they're pushed outward into the world to serve others. To be a sign of God's grace means that we point people to the world's true king. We point beyond ourselves. We say, don't look at us, look at him. To be an instrument of grace, as Newbegin talks about here, means that God uses us he uses us for his work in the world. And so we must commit ourselves to it. And to be a foretaste of his grace means that we experience now in our life together the future coming of Christ's kingdom in power. So friends, where do you find your salvation and your meaning today. When you believe that you have a righteousness, an identity, 
a name given to you by God before you've done anything for him, the result will be a joy that transcends your circumstances and is not conditioned on your performance. When you believe that Jesus was willing to do whatever was necessary, even to die on the cross, to reveal God's suffering, self-sacrificial love for you, it changes you. As the Son of God, he had no higher status that could be achieved, but he exchanged it to become a shameful dying man on a cross. He was handed over to his enemies so that you might be welcomed as a friend. He was condemned so that you might be declared righteous. He was mocked so that you might be honored. And now he invites us to go out as his ambassadors, as his representatives into the world uh, to declare the world his grace and his love and to seek justice on his behalf. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we pray today that you would give us such a sense of your love and your grace that we would know your presence with us, that we would uh, be free to love you and to love our neighbor as ourself. Open our eyes and give us hearts that are full of compassion. Empower us uh, with the Holy Spirit to move towards the places of need in our community so that we might be uh, your faith. And now, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And now, I invite you to stand as we sing together, lead on, no, yes, lead on, O King Eternal.